they show this guy, Chinese doctor, dressed in white with these hats that they wear, especially old doctors, you know? Yes. And he was sticking needles into someone's back. And you had the acupuncture shards on the wall. And I was watching this and I went crazy. I, I was like, I want to do this. <laughs> and you're five years old. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. When a prospective patient asks how acupuncture works, what they are really asking is, will acupuncture work for me? Which is an important question, the vital question, really. But for some reason, I suspect people are embarrassed to ask this question, or they don't know how to phrase it without sounding impolite. What they really want to know is, am I wasting my time and my money? Is acupuncture reliable? And for that matter, are you reliable? They want to know if you're trustworthy, and they want to figure out how they're going to explain their decision to their family and friends. Or perhaps they're trying to square Chinese medicine with some religious beliefs or fishing to see if there's enough of something that smells like science for it to be acceptable in the 21st century. Very few patients really care about how a medical intervention works. They want reassurance that it does. And they're hoping that coming for acupuncture is not an induction into some weird way of life. Are you going to ask them to do yoga, change their diet, or rearrange the furniture of their belief system? What people really want to know is are you going to respect them? Will you be able to help within the parameters of what they deem as reasonable? Can you bring value for their money and time? And mostly they will have a conversation with you about the money. But while the issue of time is rarely spoken, trust me, it's there. This is why people scour the internet, reading the reviews of people they don't know or have any kind of relationship with. This is why they will call you and ask how acupuncture works. They actually don't care how it works, but they want to see if they can begin to engage with you and see if that might lead to some kind of a connection. It's not a bad way for a patient to get a taste of what it might be like to work with you. Again, the issue here is trust, not method or mechanics. So can you answer something about how acupuncture works, but be sure to answer the unasked questions of, will this help me? How will I know this is working? And are you a shyster who's trying to pick my pocket? One last thing. If you do get into a discussion about how acupuncture works, don't give them a Chinese medicine 101 class. Talk to them in a language they can understand based on the experience that they already have. Or skip that entirely and go straight to the real questions. You'll be surprised at how well people respond to having their true concerns addressed. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on diet as medicine 
And the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Chinese medicine has found its way throughout the world, and while you might be familiar with how it has meandered its way into North America or Europe, you might not be familiar with how it has wound its way into the Southern Hemisphere of the Americas. In this conversation with Rodrigo Ananda, we discuss his draw to study and live in China, how Chinese medicine fits into the medical system of Chile, and the profound influence of Dr. Wang Jui on his learning and on his work. Join us now in this conversation.
Rodrigo Aranda, welcome to Geological. Thank you for having me, Michael. You are the first South American podcast guest that I've had. Yeah, it's an honor for me. I'm really happy to be here. I've been following Geological for a while, and I never actually thought that I would be one of the people you were interviewing, so I'm really happy. Well, that's okay. I never thought I'd run a podcast, so <laughs> life is always tremendously surprising. It's wonderful that we have this technology, that we can be here together in these different parts of the world and talk a bit about this amazing medicine that came out of East Asia, and it truly has traveled all over the globe. You can find it just about anywhere. And when I used to live in China, people would often ask me about, oh, Chinese medicine. It's like, how's that accepted in the United States? I found it to be a very annoying question after a while, <laughs> but it's actually a question that I have. I'm really curious to know about Chinese medicine in South America. I know something of, say, the natural history of it here in the United States, but I'm not sure how it got to South America. So I'd like to hear something about that. How did Chinese medicine find its way down to your corner of the world? And, and also, by extension, how did you find your way to this medicine? Okay. I, all I can say about I think it's almost the same way it got to the rest of the world outside China, of course. I mean, Chinese immigrants that, that came to this part of the world. I mean, in Brazil, um, you have a huge Chinese and Japanese community in Sao Paulo. So it's been very popular in, in Sao Paulo and other parts of Brazil since uh, many decades. In Chile, it came like through mostly, I would say that Chinese uh, who stuck in Chile probably around the second half of the 19th century after the what we call the Pacific War. Yeah, that has nothing to do with the World War II. It's something that happened here between Chile, Peru, and Bolivia. And I would say that was like first contact between like Chinese culture and Chile. There was a huge political thing that I'm not really going to go there because actually there's still a lot of uh, heat <laughs> there mm. regarding that. But after this war, a lot of uh, Chinese got stuck in Chile, basically, or migrated, you could say. And um, and with them, they brought everything, their culture, their beliefs, and things like that, especially in the north of Chile. That's what I would say. And it's also been known that in the, we have a really huge uh, port in, it's called Valparaiso. It's in the central coast of Chile. And before they opened the Panama Canal, that port used to be like the main port in the continent. So a lot of immigrants came also that way. And it's been known that, that there have, have been, like, it's not recorded, but it's been known that there's been, in Valparaiso, there's been Chinese medicine practitioners since mid-20th century, at least. But it started to get, like, more popular in the 70s, probably. There was this colleague of mine, he passed. I mean, I never got to meet him. Um, his name was Marco Vergara. And he was a medical doctor, just like me, a surgeon. And he went to live in China and he studied in Dongjiman Hospital for over two years in 1972. Wow, that's early. That's early. I know Dongjiman Hospital. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's uh, still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's attached to the Beijing Zhongyang Dashi. It's part of yep. the Beijing University there. It's the teaching hospital. Long history. Yeah, and uh, this doctor uh, spent around uh, maybe about two years and then came back and he started to practice acupuncture 
until his last days. And, um, and actually until now, it's uh, known that he's the only one who has performed like a merge, major surgical procedure using only acupuncture as anesthesia. Yeah, he, and he did that back in the 70s. You know, I've heard about that, acupuncture as anesthetic, but it's, it's nothing I ever saw in China. Yeah, me neither. Not that I sought it out. And it's nothing I was really interested in. But of course, it's one of those things that you hear about. So he actually did that. Yeah, they did that back in the 70s. And I think that, that China used to be a lot more precarious than, than what you probably lived and I lived when, when I was there. And I think that back at the time that they had to use acupuncture, maybe probably, for, for doing surgical procedures. And I think, I mean, the, the advance of Western medicine, especially in the, in the whole anesthesiology, anesthesiology field, it's uh, gotten a lot better since then. And that's what, why probably they don't use it anymore. But I've heard that they was really frequent, I mean, back in those days. So, I mean, this doctor was the first one, like first official, you could say, acupuncturist in Chile or Chinese medicine practitioner. And then after him, he started more and more people who, who got interested. Some others went to China also back in the late, late 70s. And some started going to Brazil or to Buenos Aires that they had also like a more established uh, Chinese community. Which is a funny thing, because even if we have had contact with Chinese people since, since I told you, second half of the 19th century, there's never been like a really like established uh, Chinatown in Santiago or in Valparaiso or in other places. This, they're more scattered. Like if you go to Sao Paulo, you can go to Chinatown. In, in Buenos Aires, you can go to Chinatown. But here in Chile, it's more, and it still is. I mean, we have a lot of uh, Chinese immigrants nowadays, but they're still very much scattered. I mean, they have their shopping center. We have a lot of restaurants. We have a lot of Chinese medicine practitioners from the mainland, from Taiwan also. But it's like they don't have this structured community like you have in the U.S., for instance, uh, in another parts of the world. That's curious, especially given big seaport that you used to have there that would bring yep. so many people in. It's it's so curious to me the way that peoples and cultures migrate, intermingle, mix, not mix, you know, where people settle, where they decide not to settle. It's just fascinating. Yeah, it is. And so, well, I would say gradually, the more uh, people from the medical field at first started to get interested in Chinese medicine, acupuncture in special. Mm -hmm. And we had a, like a bunch of, of those uh, back in the 80s and 90s yeah, who were practicing acupuncture already. And then I would say like probably early 2000s or late 90s, there was like a lot of people coming from non-medical background who started to study and practice also abroad. And then um, things started to get crazy. Like a lot of people uh, were practicing or a lot of people were, were looking for a place to study. And general interest started to grow since then, like late 90s, early 2000s. That's very, very similar to our situation up here in North America. Now, you said that you're also a surgeon. You're a medical MD. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm an MD. I graduated from the University of Chile in, in, in the year 2001. So it's been a while. I've mainly worked as a general practitioner. I mean, our degree says, uh, it's in Spanish, it says medical surgeon, okay, which is basically the equivalent of your MD, medical doctor. It's mm -hmm. uh, that's what I, I didn't specialize in surgeon, but if you see my degree, that's what it says. But I, did, I didn't specialize in surgeon afterward, in surgery, sorry, afterwards. 
So what drew you to the Chinese medicine? I mean, here you've got this fantastic background in Western medicine. and It's an interesting story. Actually, it was the year was 1979, around that. I was five, mm-hmm. and I was looking at this TV program. I don't know if you had this back in the States. Uh, it was a TV news program, really short. It lasted around 10 minutes. I can't remember the name. I only remember the name in Spanish. But it was produced in Western Germany at the time. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And they sent 1979, Mao Zedong had already died, so China started to open. So um, this was probably one of the first uh, crews of uh, TV people that went to, to China and then did like a, a short documentary on, on life in China. So I was watching this and I don't know, late 70s, everybody was in their Mao yes. suits, you know, everywhere in Beijing. Yes. Um, a lot of bicycles, almost no cars at all. And then they show you the highlights, the Forbidden City, the Summer Palace, the Great Wall. And then at some point, they show the inside of a hospital. Don't remember which hospital was in Beijing. And they show this guy, Chinese doctor, dressed in white with these hats that they wear, especially old doctors. Yes. And he was sticking needles into someone's back and you had the acupuncture shards on the wall and I was watching this and I went crazy. I, I was like, I want to do this. <laughs> and you're five years old. Yeah, yeah, I'm five years old. And I'm like, <laughs> I really need to learn <laughs> to do that some someday. I, know that. I am always delighted to hear where people find their inspiration. It comes from the strangest places. And sometimes it seems like just the smallest thing, just a couple moments of a 10-minute documentary on China. You see acupuncture, boom, something lights up in you. Yeah, I, I mean, it felt actually like it had something, there was something about that that I think this has something to do with me. That's what I felt. Yes, I mean, something this to do is, uh, with me. So you become a Western medical doctor. Yeah. In the back of your mind is this remembrance of acupuncture. I'm going to do this someday. When did it come back around to you where, okay, now I can do something about it? Well, actually, I was in, in my second year of medical school you know, back in the university. And the faculty just offered this extracurricular course mm. on acupuncture. Mm-hmm. And it was taught by, by this doctor. He was a dentist. He had lived in China for a couple of years. And he had started in this Sino-Japanese hospital in, in Beijing. Right, just up the road from Dong German. Yeah, yeah. And he taught a course, and that was every Saturday morning, yeah, from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. Okay, every Saturday, for that was for two years. So that was my first approach. And uh, I always say that I was really young at that time. I loved to party. I loved to hang out till late night. But I never missed a single class. I, I, I mean, that was my main motivation at that time. So I did that. I did that course. I mean, when you you do this, and on the side, of course, you have to do your anatomy, your embryology, your oh, yes, of course. physiology, and all of that. And, and then you're doing Chinese medicine on weekends. I would say that I got my interest of reason from that. I got the language. I mean, when I say language, I'm not uh, talking about the specifics of, of Mandarin. So, But I got to understand what yin and yang more or less was about five movements, five phases, and the, the structural concepts of Chinese medicine. I got to understand more or less the, the difference between views of okay how the body 
get sick in according to Chinese medicine, your causes of illness, pattern differentiation, and I got to learn a bit about acupuncture and acupuncture acupoints. But basically, that's what I learned. Well, that's a great start. I mean, if you can learn some of the basic concepts, so now hmm. you're able to begin to look at the world through these other structures, all of a sudden you're able to see a whole lot, well, both ways illnesses can arise, but more importantly, ways that you can intervene and be helpful to people. Yeah, of course. I think be, being a, a physician is all about that. It's about, uh, about finding solutions for your patients. That's, uh, exactly. Well, and then nothing happened until I was doing my internship. Here, it's seven years. Five years, you get like your bachelor degrees in medicine. And then you have to do your, a two-year internship. It's really hard because you go through everything, you know. And then you get your formal MD title after you complete the internship and pass all the, the exams. And so while I was in my internship, the first school opened in Chile, I would say. Mm -hmm. Or at least the first that I knew of yeah, that started teaching Chinese medicine. So this had a, for me, was a, really accommodating the format because they were doing classes uh, once a month, just one weekend, once a month. Otherwise, I couldn't have done it at that point because of the internship. So I took that course and it lasted again two years, just my final two years of medical school. So you did your Chinese medicine training concurrent with the end of your medical school? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my first trainings, I would say. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was more like a glimpse. I don't know. I can't find the word in English. No, but no, it was, I, uh, I think glimpse is a good description. And I think even if you're going full-time to a Chinese medicine school, you're still just getting a glimpse. Three years of training, and now you have a glimpse. Yeah. Yeah. Then you get to start really learning. Yeah, that's true. And so I graduated from medical school, and everybody was happy in the family. So and I got a, a gift, and I went to China for a few months. Uh -huh. Now, how did you decide to go to China? Well, this course that I was taking, they offered you like a study trip or something like that. So right. yeah, so that was my graduation present, Sweet. and I, I yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that was actually perfect. Yes, it was. And I went to China for uh, the whole clinical study trip lasted for a few weeks, and it was in Guangzhou University of Chinese Medicine. Yeah, that was f interesting. I don't know if you've ever been to Guangzhou, but I've been several times in the last decade. But back in 2002, Guangzhou was something totally different than what is now. What was it like back then? It was damp, a bit smelly. It's still damp. <laughs> Oh, you know, it's still damp. Yeah, of course it's damp. But a lot of town was like being in a some sort of labyrinth. Like in Beijing, when you get lost uh, walking through the hutongs, you know. And mm -hmm. um, Guangzhou had that same feeling. And I had a friend with me that had uh, studied some Chinese. And he was like uh, laughing because his Chinese was useless because most people just spoke Cantonese. Right, they didn't speak Mandarin there. <laughs> yeah, we love the way it sounds because of Kung Fu movies, yeah, when we were growing up. And we were, I remember from the university, we were just having classes and going to hospital clinical practice, and then we would just walk around town, get lost. Anything that where we were offered in the street, like street food, we would just pay for it and just try it. I mean, it was so much uh, different kind of stimuli coming from everywhere, visual, the language, nobody understood 
crap of what we were saying. Yes, it's it's rather mind blowing. Yeah, it was. It yeah. was. It was. And I was in my mid twenties, probably maybe a bit more. Still very young, and uh, I was having totally excited. And actually, the thing that got most because we all I wanted to go to China since I was five, and actually I had my mental images of what China was gonna be like when I got there and, and it was nothing not even close to what I, I was expecting so I think that was the best part <laughs> yes it, it can be so disorienting to have these ideas of how we think a place is or it should be and then we arrive there and find out it's nothing like our imagination you're not just starting from the first step you're having to undo all the steps that you had in your imagination yeah and then you can start to really engage the place yeah, but it, uh, I mean, it was fun. I mean, I had tons of fun, and then... You had fun, and you learned some medicine. Of course. And I got to see, I mean, for me, it still was all very theoretical, you know? But then you get to see it in hospitals, in everyday people, just lining up, getting their acupuncture, getting their herbs, and take us to another hospital, and you say, I mean, they use this everywhere. And that was also one of the most surprising things, I mean... It's not small. I mean, it's something huge. I mean, huge. And it, it's totally, um, here we say this, the transversal, you know, if, even if you have a lot of money, everybody uses, everybody can access it. It was mind-blowing, mind-blowing. I mean, to see the, the spread of Chinese medicine in China, I didn't expect it to be so much in the 21st century. That's especially coming from a Western medical background, going there and, and, and see people that have just had a, I don't know, stroke, and they were doing acupuncture, or they had a facial paralysis, and they were they were having acupuncture, and et cetera, et cetera. It was, uh, it was really mind-blowing. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory Practice it in your own kitchen and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Yes, well, you know, it's so embedded in the culture there. And even the ideas of Chinese medicine, the, the ways that, that you and I learn to look through these filters and lenses and concepts and start to see the world a little bit differently. Oh, yeah, maybe you don't want to be eating ice cream during your period. Mm. That might be a good idea. We can understand that at this point, you and I yeah. and all everybody out listening to this. We can understand that at this point. But we couldn't understand that before we studied medicine. And a lot of times, people in China, it's not a foreign concept. I mean, they completely grow up with that idea. Of course. I had a woman once when I was working in Beijing. She came in. She said, my period is usually just fine. 
I never have trouble. But the other night I was out with my girlfriends and I wasn't thinking. I accidentally drank a cold soda with ice in it. And now today my period stopped. I have a headache and I'm nauseous. Hmm. Right. So she knew to go see a, a Chinese medicine practitioner. Why? Cold stagnation. That was super easy to diagnose. She told me exactly what her problem was. She knew what her problem was. You know, you find that when you go to China and you work in the hospitals there and, and you see what's going on and how the people speak about it because it's not foreign. It's built into the structure of the culture. It makes it much easier to practice Chinese medicine in many ways because people are they're able to come in and basically tell you what is wrong with them. And I would say, especially like in the elderly, that's a lot more common than in young people nowadays, mm. at least. Yeah, probably. Because they know people that have grown in these traditions, and even if they didn't study medicine, they know they're yin and yang. They know cold causes stagnation, and they know they shouldn't maybe go for a cold swim if they're having their period. They know that dairy food is not really that good for you. They know a lot of stuff, and they even no, like, uh, oh, yeah, I'm massaging my Susan leaf because I have this and this and this. They, they even know that. And they will even give you point recommendations yes, in the yes. clinic. <laughs> right. And then, like, all the old grandmas and all the old aunties, you know, they're very good with gua sha and cupping. I mean, yeah. it's not a strange thing whatsoever. It's, it's completely part of the culture. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful about the thing about Chinese medicine and Chinese culture in general. It's embedded in, in, mm -hmm. in the whole culture. So you were in Guangzhou. You got to study some medicine, didn't you? Also, at some point, study in Beijing with Doctor Wang Jui. Yeah, yeah. But that was uh, eight years after that. I've been coming and going to China since two thousand two. After that, I just traveled around China for a, a month. Uh, maybe a bit more than a month. I did some Southeast Asia also, just for fun. And then I came back, I started working as a, as a GP, and then I applied for a scholarship and went back to China. Then I stayed for almost three years. My first year was in Tianjin, mm. University of Chinese Medicine. There was this program, I don't know if they have it anymore. There was a program that was mainly focused for Western doctors, and it was really intense. It was like a year program, and you had classes uh, every day, and you got a... I would say that from this program, I got the structure, because uh, I learned the basic theory, my diagnosis, my syndrome differentiation. I learned herbs, uh, acupuncture. We had really decent uh, clinical practice. It was a bit of everything. And then I moved down to Nanjing and stayed there for another year and a half. And there I, I was mainly following... Maybe you've heard of Dr. Wan Sheng. He's a really one of these uh, really old old school doctors. Uh, I'm not familiar with him. What Did he have any unusual or particularly helpful perspectives that you were able to learn about? I would say that his diagnosis skills is the best uh, I've seen yeah, and up until then. That's why I stuck with him. And his heart, I would say, I mean, he's always smiling and he's so caring with his patients and with his students. And I mean, we've, we're friends until this day. So we just uh, actually we hosted a, an online seminar with him the last couple of weekends. And I don't know, it's already been like 17 years since we've met. He's a wonderful 
human being. He loves to, to research and study the aging, the Shanghan Loon. And he, there this, uh, and he learned that if he didn't have a formal education at the, at the university, he was he learned medicine with his, his mother taught him. So it's, he's very old school, as I said. It's interesting hearing that he learned from his mother. So, yeah. I mean, especially a certain generation, uh, people would learn from a family member or they learned from somebody in the community. We often hear about how the medicine was passed down from male to male. And yet I have heard so many stories of people who learned it and whoever their teacher was, that teacher learned it from a grandmother, yeah. that teacher learned it from a mother. There's actually, I think I'm coming around to here, I don't know if believing is the right word, but I've just heard so many stories now of the medicine being passed down through the women. It's not an unusual thing to hear about this. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Something we should learn more about, actually. Well, I mean, I don't know about down your way, but up here in the United States, I'm guessing 70% of the practitioners are women, you know, and a lot of the teachers these days also women. Yeah, I would say here maybe it's 50-50, I would say, practitioners, men. Yeah, but uh, he learned with his mother, and and now he's in Nanjing, he's revered. Yeah, he's revered. I mean, he's like, so he has like this kind of certificate, what you could say, an old, ancient, ancient, famous doctor, something like that, from the government. Yeah, that's probably like a Lao Ming Yi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lao Ming, that's his title. So then I, I came back to Chile in late 2005. I did some work teaching at hospitals. I started small practice and then after a year like i was back in china again after a year and you just couldn't stay away could you yeah no i couldn't and i mainly was going back to see this doctor dr wan Sheng, and and to practice tai chi also in nanjing i met this wonderful tai chi teacher and uh, i've been practicing with him since more or less 2004 and i was going more teaching and usually here in, I, I was going like winter, here we get our summer is, starts uh, in late December, but also our, our vacation. So for me, it was easy to, to get free time at that and in January and February. And usually I went to cold China in, in those months. Oh man, Nanjing is not fun in the winter. It's, no, no. It's cold, it's damp, it's cloudy. Ugh. It gets to your bones. Actually, yes, I does. prefer Beijing. It's colder. But it doesn't have this damp quality that gets so so deep inside. Mm-hmm. You're exposed to it. Um, well, I was just doing this, and at that time when I was in Nanjing, I met Giovanni, Giovanni Machocha. I met him in 2005. I met him again around 2008, probably in the in, to, in the Pacific Symposium in San Diego. Then I, I met him in New York for uh, one of his courses, and uh, I invited him. For lunch, uh, we had a really nice uh, pasta in Soho with uh, some wine. We became quite good friends, so I invited him to Chile. He came. He spent like a week here in Santiago. He taught a seminar, a weekend seminar, and the rest of the time we were just uh, going around, going to good restaurants, uh, wine tasting, and, and so it was so so fun to be with. I have to say. And a few years before he passed, I got to visit him in Santa Barbara, and and, and we basically did the same over there also. Um, well, let's see. You want you know wine, nice wine, good food, good company, little medicine. 
It's not a bad way to go through the day. Yeah, no, no, not a bad way. Yeah, he was a big influence also, I have to say. Was, mm -hmm. I think for most people that practice uh, Chinese medicine the way he was. Well, of course. I mean, the, the material that he translated, it was like everybody's textbook that I knew. Yeah. So those fundamentals that we so much rely on. Yeah, his contribution was enormous that way. Yeah, I'm lucky. I'm always really grateful and lucky to have met him and to have been able to spend a lot of quality time with him. So you've been lucky. I mean, ever since the age of five, <laughs> it's like there's these stepping stones that show up that allow yep. you to go deeper and deeper into this thing we're enchanted with when you were a child. Yes, and you haven't heard the best part, actually, <laughs> yet. I don't know. Street food in Guangdong and Guangzhou sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was—I told you I was in, in Pacific Symposium. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. 2008. In the showroom of the Pacific Symposium, I walk uh, by uh, Islam Press stand, yes. and I see this book. It's called Applied Channel Theory by Dr. Wang Jui and Jason Robertson. And John, the person who was uh, working there for Islam Company, Islam Press, sorry. Uh, yes, John O'Connor. John O'Connor, yeah, yeah. John O'Connor makes Eastland Press work. Yeah, John O'Connor, he's a great guy. Yes. He just speaks wonders about this book. I mean, you have to get it. I mean, if you're really into acupuncture, into China, I mean, there's nothing like this ever been written. And I'm like, wow, I just got a copy. I came back to Santiago, I read the book. And then on my next trip to China, which that was just maybe two months away, I just went everywhere in Beijing looking for this Dr. Wang Jui. And I couldn't find him. Nobody knew him. And the university said, oh, he retired. Maybe he's dead. Something like that. All of my friends that were living there and, and that were, like, of course, in the medical Chinese medicine field, nobody knew about him. So I just um, came back, back to Chile. Nothing happened. Next year, in 2009, I go to... Pacific Symposium again. <laughs> There's John O'Connor again. Yeah, there he is again. And actually, it's a funny story because the first hardcover edition had had some problems. So when you kind of cracked in the middle, mm. so John O'Connor gave me a, a new copy. I, I just I just told him, look, I bought this wonderful book last year, but this happened. Oh, yeah, I know this. And I was also buying a bunch of other books, so he just grabbed a new copy. This copy is new and it, it won't happen. I mean, the same thing will happen. He just gave me a new copy. Those guys at Eastland Press are great. Yeah, they're great. Their attention to quality is just unparalleled. It, it sounds so in character. It is. I'm walking around and I meet this young woman who was working for, oh, I don't remember. It might not be Acupuncture Without Borders, but it was some similar kind of uh, initiative. And we started talking, and she told me that she was from Seattle. And we started talking, and, and she saw that I had the book in, in my hand, and she said, oh, Jason was my, one of my teachers. Oh, that's great. Uh, I would love to meet him, and blah, 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 blah. And so we exchanged emails, and I just went back home to Santiago again. I was down south in, in Patagonia for a couple of weeks working. Um, they just took me there to treat, I don't know, hundreds of patients a day. That was crazy, actually. We're doing like this huge community clinic. And I was there for uh, some weeks. And then Jason Robertson writes me an email. Um, so this young woman that I've met, she talked to him and she must have said something like, like, hey, there was this guy from Chile that read your book. <laughs> something like that. So Jason got excited and he wrote me an email. And, and I'll bet Jason knew exactly where Dr. Wang Jui was. 
Of course. So we started uh, uh, writing, exchanging emails, like uh, almost on a weekly basis with Jason. And then uh, at some point, I just uh, told him, I mean, I'm, I'm going to China again. I'm going to China really soon. And he said, would you like me to introduce you to my teacher? And I said, please do. And then that's, uh, that's what happened. So that was uh, late 2009. I stayed a few months there with Dr. Wang at his clinic. He was teaching at that time. At, uh, it was near the military museum. Yes, yes, I remember that. Way out on the west side of Beijing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love to go there. That, was it Hummingbird Lane, Bumblebee Lane, something like that? Oh, well, yeah, I don't remember. I have yeah. photos of that. and So I, started, I, I spent there a few months, and I was like, that's when I felt like, I have been very lucky. I have very good teachers, wonderful experiences. But I think it was then that I felt really like, like my mind kind of cracked open. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this guy is something else. I mean, the way like he did everything. I mean, from palpating channels to palpating points before putting one needle. And also you would see that he would get with these wonderful results, maybe with three, four needles. And then even the way he drank his tea or he would smoke a cigar was special. That's everything was special about. And he would have this pace, this really kind of slow pace that you don't see really in that much in China nowadays. And then he would start talking and you would just go crazy. I mean, listening to them, his mind opening up ideas and interpretations from the classics and, uh, I don't know, clinical experience and uh, so much. Well, I went back home again. I had to work, so I had to keep back home. Of course. Well, and it's a good thing, too, <laughs> because to have a time where you can be exposed to great teachers, like your teacher in Nanjing, or to someone in Beijing, like Wang Jui, you know, whoever, to have a chance to be with them, to have your mind opened up, to have new ideas, to begin to see things differently than you'd seen them before. I think it's very helpful to go back to our clinics and just dig in to the work with our new way of looking and seeing and see if we can act, figure it out for ourselves. How does this stuff work with these new ideas that I have? I think the clinical practice piece is absolutely essential. You can't do without it. Yeah, and I think that, of course, that worked out well for, for me. I mean, I started doing palpation as soon as I got back to Santiago. I, I've never stopped. And then that same year, I, Dr. Wang and Jason uh, taught a course in, in Offenbach in Germany. So I just uh, I paid for my tickets and I flew to Germany. And it was like a five-day course, practical and theoretical. So they went through all the channel physiology according to applied channel theory. And we did the palpations of all channel, pole point locations, uh, live clinical cases with Dr. Wang in the afternoon. So it was perfect. And once again, with this course, I, I felt like I got the structure. Then you just have to start feeling it. And once you got the foundations so all set, you can start feeling it with uh, your own experiences. And then I went back to Dr. Wang's. Uh, I used to live right after Christmas. I would go to Beijing and probably stay until late March. That was my routine. Great. You were there for the worst time of the year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was cold as hell. But <laughs> the, the good thing is that. Usually, few students came. Mm. Most of the time, it was just Mei Li. I don't know if you've talked to Mei Li. Yeah, I know Mei Li. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. 
Yeah, it was her, Jonathan Chang, and me. A lot of the time was just the three of us, and maybe one or two weirdos that would show up in winter, and that was it. <laughs> no, not many. Yeah. So I think I got the most of it because I was going in winter. Mm -hmm. So how would you say, I mean, this is a big question. How would you say your thinking about acupuncture shifted by having exposure to Dr. Wang Jui? Well, I, th I think it's, uh, it changed everything about it. Before that, I mean, we all studied channels. You know, you, you have to learn the main trajectories of the channel, that they go through here, they go through here. But when you go down to practice, it's mainly about points. I mean, which acupoints am I going to use? After studying with Dr. Wang and, and until now, I mean, the main difference is that the channel became something alive. Mm. In my mind and, and in my practice, and when I'm doing acupuncture, all uh, of course, and I'm thinking about channels. I'm not thinking whether I'm going to use for gates or for this or that point. I'm thinking about about deceased channels, okay. And I'm, sometimes I'm even thinking, okay, about uh, healthy channels to help deceased channel move, flow better. So I would. I think that's the main difference because I think palpation-based styles of acupuncture and channel-based uh, systems are stronger nowadays. They're more popular nowadays. But 20 years ago, it was mostly point-based. I mean, this you'll use this point for damp, this point for this, or, or even in the more like medical side of acupuncture, it was like this point for stomach ache, this point for headache, this point for sciatica pain, or this for so, um, I mean, it, it shifted the whole way to look at acupuncture. And again, I'm really thankful for that. Still, I, I say I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I was able to keep going to China up until the day he died. Uh, he passed in August 2017. And I was lucky enough that to be chosen by him as one of his second generation apprentices. And we did the whole ceremony. And that was probably one of the best days of my life, you know. That was 2013. I only have words of love toward Dr. Wang Jui, wherever he may be, and forever grateful. I think my success as an acupuncturist today is mainly due to him. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. 
he was an extraordinary human being. I mean, as you pointed out, yes, he was an extraordinary human being, very intentful and mindful, constantly trying to figure things out. I think one of the things I, yeah. I so appreciate about the small amount of time that I spent with him was that he didn't rest on any kind of accolades. He would look into the areas where things weren't working and try to figure out why aren't they working. And he'd go back to his classics. He'd go back to his notes. He'd go back to a case to see what he had missed. He was constantly in this learning mode, and he was incredibly generous with what he had to share. Yes. I would agree with you that because of him and also the work that Jason Robertson did of taking his experience with Dr. Wang Jui, with the years that he spent in Beijing, turning it into that book so that we all have access to it, that we can gain this appreciation, not just for the points, but for the dynamic of the channels. And you just said something that I think it's only in the past few years for myself that I have found this to be true and found it to be helpful, which is you take what's healthy in the body. You take the channels that are working well, and you use what's working well to treat what's not working well, that we can use what's correct about our physiology to help treat what is not correct about our physiology. And, and I think this is one of the most potent aspects of the medicine that we practice, that we can take the resources that are already present and we can mobilize them. And that mobilization and that power, it's not small. No, no, it's not. Amazing things can happen. Yes. I'm just going to grab one of your phrases, the, the, what you said. Yeah, for me, what most, I mean, he was an amazing human being, but what I admire him most, I think, was the way his mind worked. I mean, he was always like in problem-solving mode. And he was always, uh, up until the last days, he was still thinking about this, about certain diseases, processes, certain chapters of books. Uh, he was still doing that up until his last days. I mean, he was really, truly amazing. And he gathered such an amazing group of people around him. That's also something I'm thankful because, I mean, for Jonathan, for Jason, I mean, we're really all uh, good friends. We, we speak regularly. Um, I'm grateful for May Lee, for Nisa, for Yefim, yeah, which are all true and wonderful friends. We all share his uh, the passion and the love that for our teacher. Yes. So are you in the work? Because you teach in schools. Down there in Chile? I have a school here. You have a school? Yeah. So I suspect you're teaching these methods and techniques that you've learned from Dr. Dr. Wang. Yeah, our, our school teaches acupuncture. It's a part-time program, the Chinese medicine with main focus on acupuncture. We have another program on, on Tuina. We recently started Jingfang course also. Hmm. Which aspect of the Jingfang will you be teaching? No, not me. A friend of mine uh -huh. teaches that. He's a follower of Huang Huang. Oh, yeah. One of Dr. Huang Huang's great. Yeah. He mainly teaches classical herbs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I, I mostly teach acupuncture. And acupuncture is very much uh, palpation-based. So all of our students uh, go through the physiology and the palpation process. And I also do some extracurriculum courses for those that want to go deeper into light channel theory. Yeah, because it's a process. But I've been doing that for the last five years. We kind of shifted the whole curriculum in order to adapt it more into Dr. Wan's way of uh, thinking. 
one of the things I found very interesting about studying Dr. Wang's material is that puts together acupuncture with the great channels in a way that I, I don't feel like I ever really got it in school. I mean, you hear about like the lung, like the hand tie-in lung channel or the foot tie-in spleen channel. You know, we hear these sort of longer names of the channels, but to actually understand what does tie-in mean? What does Yang Ming mean? What does Jian mean? It seems like Dr. Wang Jui went into quite a bit about that. Of course, I mean that was his the main focus. I mean uh, of his book. I mean and of his teaching was about uh, understanding healthy physiology first. Yes, and his way of explaining healthy physiology is through these six channels. Because basically, one of the ways we can understand this is the six rivers and then one aspect of the river flows through your upper extremity upper body and one aspect of the your extremity of this river flows through your lower extremity okay that's why we have 12 channels but these six channels and that pairing is not by luck by chance and mm. it's something they have a anatomical and physiological functional uh, common something i don't know how to express myself in english for that but i think you get it the very word that was coming to mind for me was functional. Yeah. That there's nothing arbitrary about this, that these six great flows, which of course can be subdivided into 12, but these six great flows are all about physiology and function. And if we can understand physiology and function through these six great flows, now you don't need point prescriptions. Yeah. Now you don't need protocols because you have the source code for being able to figure out what's happening for any individual at this moment in time, and then what to do about it. Something I, I remember Dr. Wang said at one point that it's important to know the map, and the map, her, it's, uh, or you could say her compass also, that's the channel system. Mm -hmm. It tells you what what's happening in the body, and it, it guides you through the therapeutic vertical process. It really makes clinical practice fun. Yes, yes. And I have to say that ever since I've started using this a little bit over 10 years ago, um, I mean, practice just gets better and better. I mean, in every sense, more fun, patients gets, get better, you get more patients coming in. Yes. <laughs> and that's more fun. Yeah, that's more fun. Even now, I mean, we're in lockdown now in Santiago. I, I can still work because of I'm a medical doctor, so I can still go and do my work. And I thought that patients would stop coming, but they don't. I mean, they still come. So tell us a little bit about how you're treating long COVID patients. What are some of the common things that you're seeing that you find that our medicine is helpful for? I think it works really well with the lack of smell, taste, and but mainly with uh, fatigue and this the patient described it so well he said that i feel like all my organs are, are out of order mm -hmm. like his breathing pattern is out of order his digestive patterns are out of order um his urinary patterns are out of order everything is out of order and it's interesting because uh, according to what uh, dr wang taught uh, uh, tie-in channels are in charge of rhythms mainly because of the lung the breathing rhythm is what sets the entire rhythms of your body. And of course, this patient got pneumonia because of COVID. So his lungs are pretty messed up. So everything else gets messed up. So basically, 
of course I palpated him and, and I did palpation, channel palpation, of course, and uh, diagnosed him. And uh, he had mainly what we would say tie-in counterflow. Okay, so I did. I just chose a couple of points. Long five, spring nine, one of Doctor Wang's favorite uh, combination. Mm-hmm. And let's see, that's the latest patients I, I saw, but I've seen this pattern a couple of times this these last few months, and uh, a lot of tie-in issues always. And usually I do like a mix of first doing these hefty points, like uh, long five, spring nine. Sometimes then I do UN source points, like uh, long nine, spring three, sometimes kidney three also depends, but they're more f- for the tonifying aspect of tie-in especially. And it works. It seems to be working with a few COVID patients that I've seen. Mm-hmm. When you're doing your channel palpation, is there anything that seems to regularly show up in these long-haul COVID patients who have a tie-in condition? Yeah, mainly they have most of what the ones I've seen. They have uh, like chain nodules from like Kung Tzu to Chu Tzu, like mm. uh, lung six to lung five. And the same goes from the spleen. Usually the spleen gets a lot the worst, but I think because most people's spleens are already a bit deficient. Deficient or compromised, yeah. Yeah, compromised, compromised. So usually in the spleen you get a lot of sign jiao to in and you get a, like a whole chain of nodules. That's uh, what I've seen the most. Yeah, I'm really interested in keep going and keep uh, with this. I hope I get more people that have uh, already had COVID. Because it's interesting because some people have had heart issues yes. or uh, kidney failure or other things. And uh, I would like to see how all this uh, shows up in the, in the patient's channels. I hope I get the chance to, to see more patients. Uh, well, I suspect that you will because, you know, we already know, regardless of what kind of viral infection, there are always people who are going to have some kind of post-viral issues. Fibromyalgia falls in that. Chronic fatigue falls in Epstein-Barr. We know that viral issues that have not completely been resolved can result in this. And, you know, lucky for us, there are things that we can use with our medicine that will be very, very helpful for people that have suffered with long COVID. I'm curious to look back three years from now. Yeah, me too. And see all the things that, that we're going to have an opportunity to learn about treating because of COVID. I think this is where our medicine has a huge opportunity to relieve a lot of suffering and help a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've been trying to have a lot of colleagues that have had the COVID, of course, those that worked in the front lines. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to get them to go to the clinic, but of course, there's still a lot of these skeptics in the medical community, so it's not that easy. But I love treating skeptics because skeptics are generally paying attention in some way. I'm always worried about the people who come into my clinic. They've never had acupuncture, and they say, I believe in this. It's like, how could you believe in it? You have no experience. If you're believing in it, you're believing in a, in a fantasy. You're not believing in actual clinical results. Many skeptics, they're looking to see if they get results. And if they do, okay, hmm. they're in. So skepticism is not a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, healthy skepticism. Healthy is skepticism, yeah. right, as opposed yeah. to closed-minded skepticism. But that, that's a whole yes. different kettle yes, of fish. Yes. I mean, there are a whole like rainbow of skeptics down here, and of course, I know you have them there. Those that don't even believe in the pandemic, it's also made up lie by the government or something like that. 
I like your phrasing, a rainbow of skeptics. Yeah. <laughs> different <laughs> different colors, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, you have the scientists, the hardcore medical practitioners that don't believe in, in nothing that doesn't belong to Western medical science. Mm. But then on the other end, you have the uh, new age kind of skeptic that don't believe in anything that has to do with science. But they believe in healing power of the moon, the stars, the... I know, whatever. There may be that, but I don't know how to use it in clinic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so speaking of clinic, we're going to have to wind this down in a moment. You have a school. It sounds like you're doing some teaching online. Are some of the things that you're teaching available to people all over the world? I mean, if I was interested in sitting in on one of your classes, could I do that? Oh, I forgot this, uh, this platform. There's this platform... Oh, I forgot them. Don Brown's platform. I just forgot his, the name oh, of his platform. Healthy Seminars. Healthy Seminars, yes. There was a course, it was a class, a class that I taught in Israel in the Congress that they do every year. They've invited me a couple of times. And the one I did in on Sanjiao, like the whole concept and some clinical application of the Sanjiao. Um, according to Applied Channel Theory, of course, I did that, and that's in English, and that's online. It's available in healthy seminars. Everything I do, well, else I do, it's available in, in Spanish. Spanish, of course, through my school's website. The only one in English is that one. They recorded another one of my lectures in Israel, but uh, I might be in TCM Academy, though, uh, but uh, I'm not sure. They recorded the last lecture I did in Tel Aviv. Well, two years ago, it'd be nice if we could get you up here to teach a class sometime. I would love to. Once we're able to travel and everything, it would be fun. Yes, I think we're months away from that. I'm being optimistic. Mm, I'm optimistic as well. Sometimes that gets me in a lot of trouble, but I'd still rather be an optimist than a pessimist. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Well, Rodrigo, thank you so much for sitting down for a conversation with me today. And it's always fun to hear about how we found our way into this medicine. And really, there are these extraordinary moments where something opens up for us, right? You just happened to be at the PCOM conference, came across Jason's book. That would be right about the time it first was published, if it was 2008. Yep. You just happened to be there right as it was being published. So it's, I think we often get lucky in our lives that opportunities show up. Yeah, it's, I'm going to quote uh, Queen. It's kind of magic. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much, and I look forward to talking with you again sometime. Yeah, me too, Mike. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. One thing for sure, passion, vision, and persistence will take you a long way. And while the road at times might not be clear, if you keep putting yourself in front of what you're after— the opportunities will show up. But it does take some persistence and a kind of a steady heart. I think about Rodrigo's various trips to China before he crossed paths with Dr. Wang Jui. It reminds me that it can take years, decades really, to bring to fruition the spark that set us along a certain path. As the I Ching seems to constantly be telling me, perseverance furthers. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. 
It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.